0: Are we are we live now. I'm
1: recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Umbrella Umbrella Umbrella
2: Cast.
3: Welcome to the Umbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing, and what's also been a big week for Umbrella is our deputy editor Josie Tutty. Hello. Our senior media reporter Zoe Samios. Hello. And our senior agencies reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. And later on, we'll be talking about a landmark survey on mental health within this industry, within which we work, including. Keeping a hold on our mental health when deadlines and the drinks trolley are looming.
4: How often do we congratulate or think it's a great thing for people to say no to an event or no to drinking alcohol when they know that that wouldn't be the right thing for them?
5: The importance of job satisfaction. You might get stuck doing a press ad for a regional paper or, you know, it doesn't suddenly feel like you're going to be able to change the, the world.
2: Training our leaders to take care of themselves. And in order for them to show up and be the best leader they can be, they've got to take care of themselves first. And finding the positive.
0: And there's, there's always more that we can do, but the industry itself is very much open to this conversation and, and having it. But first, the week's topics.
6: Nine reveals what its new management team will look like after its Fairfax takeover.
3: Optus takes no prisoners.
6: Who really won the 2018 TV ratings?
3: And Mumbrella turns ten. Well, the takeover of Fairfax has passed its final hurdles, and Nine has named its new leadership team, uh, along with the news that a relatively low number of 92 people will lose their jobs through redundancies. Um, Zoe, not not to not take it seriously, because there are there, there, you know there, there are people who've. Left the organization as a result, but. For a big merger that side, it's a comparatively low number, I guess.
7: I think when I first saw that the, the number of people that were going to be impacted was just 92, I was thinking back to, and over the past few months, I've looked at a lot of Fairfax stories over the years, and I can remember one instance of 1,100 roles, I think, being affected in one business. So to hear that, and I think the total roles affected is something like the 140 mark, uh, but to, to think that three years ago Fairfax was axing more than a 1,000 and when the two companies combine and there's 6,000 people, only 92. I mean, it's sad for the 92, but 92 is considerably small relative to the amount of people in the broader Nine business. And my
3: sense is quite a lot of them are quite senior people who are going to get pretty decent payouts as well.
7: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think when we looked at the news from Nine and Fairfax this week, we saw a number of really uh, senior um uh, Executives from Fairfax who will be moving on. Well, one that we knew about forever was Greg Highwood, who's the CEO of Fairfax, but there are obviously a number of other people on that team too.
3: So it's Greg Highwood's uh, goodbye this week. So he's now left the organisation, being given his goodbye.
7: That's my understanding, yeah. So everyone who was made redundant finishes up this Friday, and then the new business will be operating on Monday. But it's none of it's a complete shock. I think a lot of the people who probably were at that level were probably worried or considering that or had been spoken to in this process of getting the merger through. One of the changes will be that Helen McCabe, who's the digital content director at Nine, will now report into him. Uh, separate to that, we have Alan Williams, who runs Australian Community Media, which is Fairfax's regional titles. He'll be the person that Stuff in New Zealand reports into, as well as all those regional things. So
3: regional is interesting. So one of the one of the changes which was talked about a bit was that the the, the Canberra Times, which had previously been part of that Metro set, is now on the regional side, which which makes sense to me. I was um. On Monday, I was doing. I was at the ABC in Melbourne doing the newspaper review for for News Breakfast, and you, as part of that, when you're sort of it's sort of six o'clock in the morning, and you're quickly going through the the the, the, the papers from all around the country and trying to decide what you're going to talk about, you get to the front page of the Canberra Times, and it's not. It's not a metro paper. It's not a national paper. I can't remember what the story was, but I think this is such a local story. So it does make sense. I know that sort of there might be some notices out of joint for the, you know, for the, for the journalists who feel that because it's Canberra, it's the nation's capital, but it does make sense. What do you think will happen generally for the regional papers though? Will, will they stay within the family? Do you t- detect much love for them out of nine?
7: I think nine's got a lot of love for a lot of things at the moment. Um, I would say that the regional would be an area that they would perhaps look to sell off, as is the case with New Zealand, which they were trying to do. Uh, Fairfax Media's business was called Stuff, is called Stuff in New Zealand. They obviously struggled to merge with uh, another big New Zealand company. NZME, Yeah, it? that was NZME this year. So there's obviously interest that we know about that. Alan Williams is obviously leading that too, but I would think that The regional assets and and the New Zealand assets are something that Nine will look to sell off in the future. Whether or not that's imminent, I think their focus is actually on things like Stan and Domain and what they can do with that. But I think eventually that part of the business will be sent off.
3: And the other thing which has been talked about a bit this week, Zoe, is uh, radio, Macquarie Media, which Nine has a, a, a the, the biggest single stake in, but people like Mark Carnegie and John Singleton as minority shareholders. Sounds like there's perhaps a, an imminent deal to, uh, to make Macquarie Media f- a fully owned Nine asset as well.
7: That's my understanding. I think there was something in the Australian's data room section this week that suggested that... They had proposed a bid or they'd at least had, at the very least, had a discussion with John Singleton about taking his share. They're definitely interested in Macquarie Media as as a business that can complement their other assets. And Hugh Marks, who is the CEO of Nine, has been quite clear with that, specifically with me when when I've asked him about it as well. He sees it as a way, especially in sport, to work across platform, to have television broadcasters and radio broadcasters, I'm guessing, being eventually multi-skilled
3: yeah i suppose what's interesting though is for instance and 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 this sort of goes to you know how i guess deals are done in in along separate tracks is although nine has the rights to the tennis i don't i'm pretty sure it doesn't have the rights to the radio for instance for the tennis so it's not as if suddenly we'll be you know we'll, we'll, we'll be hearing a commentary on the radio of Nine, I guess the, the, the sporting asset Nine's most proud of.
7: No, potentially not, but there are definitely people like Ben Fordham, for instance, that works across both Nine and Macquarie. I think the opportunity there is to do that with a lot more talent.
3: Ross Greenwood, of course, yes, of course, on, on the Today Show, the sort of you know the kind of the I, I, I guess Nine's leading business journalist, yeah. who also has a, an evening show on Two GB as well in Sydney.
7: Exactly. So there's a number of people that are already doing that, and I think the aim would be to do more in that space. But if If you don't own or fully own the company, that becomes a lot harder to have any control over how you work or work together or how you create synergies or anything like that. You'd have to own the business fully to be able to do that kind of stuff instead of of having someone like John Singleton having a view and holding you back from doing stuff.
3: Next, Optus gets out of jail. So Optus released a new ad from director Steve Rogers this week. Great director. It appeared to equate a telco contract with jail. A bold strategy, as they say, on Yes Minister, to say the least. Abby, what did you think of this one?
1: Despite... Popular opinion. I actually really like this ad.
3: When you say popular opinion, so tell us what the popular opinion is. And do you mean the comment thread on Mumbrella?
1: Correct. <laughs> <laughs> According to the comment thread on Mumbrella, uh, a lot of people are confused by the ad. A lot of people don't understand it. The ad basically shows two men in a, in a jail cell. One man sort of looks down, opens the door and just walks straight out of jail. And basically that's the ad with some whistling in the background and it is, it is shot shot quite well so quite a simple ad and uh, a lot of people quite a high budget one as well because it looks like they hired
3: out a whole prison and you know <laughs> brought in about 100 extras i mean it's not a cheaply made ad is it
1: no and that's that's another reason why i like it i i re it again this morning and i was i was looking at it and i thought to myself you know i sort of put myself in the abbey on a sunday night shoes watching tv ads and uh, I was engaged by the ad when it started, first of all. So it wasn't an ad that I thought, hmm, this is boring, not engaged. From the start, I was curious. I was curious about, I don't know if you guys ever play the ad game where you've got to guess what what the ad is and what brand it is. I play That's it with best my friends game. all the time. I win every time. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you see the ads before. <laughs> I never win games, <laughs> anyway. Um, and I, yeah, I was immediately curious and immediately engaged because, as you said, it's it's a high budget ad. It's it's shot well. It's it's. Um, so
3: the agency behind it.
1: Seventy two and sunny. So a lot of people are confused by the strategy behind the ad. And I I don't know, Tim, you're not the biggest fan of the strategy. Yeah, look, I think the, the,
3: the question I would ask, and, you know, this is based on talking to kind of others within the industry as well, is what was the brief? What was the problem they were trying to solve? Now, my assumption would be there are a bunch of people who Optus would like to bring over who are a bit scared about signing a contract in case they're stuck with the telco for two years and they don't like it so this is their way of saying you're not going to be locked up with us but you know as one person sort of put it to me if you had a sign up outside a restaurant that said if you think our steak is shit you can get your money back then Is there a danger that what people take from that is, if you come here, you might find the steak is a bit shit?
1: But I think the difference between a telco and a restaurant is very, very different. And to me, I sort of look at that ad and I think some people do look at telcos like jail. They think they're frustrating. They don't like them. And Optus have sort of tried to position themselves and say, yeah, but we're not like other telcos. You can walk away and and i think that also shows confidence in a product uh, to be fair because i think if your product's shit you're not you're not going to say you know, you can have it for free. Whereas I think they're actually saying, hey, we believe in our product enough to say that you can walk away if you want. And it is a strategy we've
6: started to see from some of the banks in the wake of the Royal Commission. Instead of saying, we're great, we're for you, we're for the customer. A few banks have started saying, we know we screwed up and we're going to do better. And I think that honesty is quite refreshing. Yeah, look, that's a fair,
3: I mean, I I guess one of the things I like about that sort of Optus trying to be transparent is if you think back to their World Cup disaster, that sort of a, the 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 apology ads that they ran in the papers again was quite transparent, you know arguably and we talked about it at the time would have wanted to happen a day or two faster, so you want to see some nimbleness to it but but yeah look i think i I think the more they can have a honest conversation with their customers, the better
1: and uh, you know I think. Another reason why I, I really like this ad is I think create in creativity this year, we have seen a lot of overcomplication of both strategy and creative. And this is an ad that really strips it back and really is a simple message. It's, you know, to me, it's not confusing. I get what they're trying to say. And I really like it for that reason. And uh, another point that I would make about the ad as well and 72 and Sunny, who are their lead agency on their roster is I also think 72 and Sunny have done quite a good job at making a brand for themselves through Optus. Now,
3: this is a good question, isn't it? Because every now and then you look at an ad and you think, is this in service of the agency? rather more than it is in service of the brand
6: the the first ad in this series was the fish and chip shop chicken salt dilemma um and it was quite similar in terms of the quirkiness it was very strange so for those
3: who haven't seen it so it's
6: essentially some guys in a fish and chip shop and they're asked do you want chicken salt or regular salt and then they say both and that's start basically dancing. the ad and then they start <laughs> dancing. And I actually looked on the analytics for our story about this, the, the chicken salt ad, and it was the seventh most read story in November for us. So I think people are interested, even though it's bizarre, and it might not necessarily be a strategy that is perfect. I think just the fact that it's a bit weird and quirky is is playing well for the agency at least
1: and and that's you know i i can really and i have really seen 72 and sunny develop a personality and a voice for the agency through the work that they've done with optus i can now see that ad and see 72 and sunny in it so i definitely think that 72 and sunny have done a really good job at getting things out of optus as well in terms of uh, defining themselves in the market which i don't think they had done before they had optus as a client
3: Well, next, the yearly TV ratings battle is finally over.
6: And the TV ratings period has officially ended for the year, with Seven and Nine both able to claim victories. But who was the real winner? Zoe, were there any clear answers here?
7: Clear is a really good question. (laughs) Um, Yes, I think that it was fairly clear that Seven... Won the year, although as always, every network is going to have a win in their own way. I think the real challenge on who won the year is around broadcast video on demand, which is um, my favourite topic at the moment. And that I think is fine, I'm finding harder and harder to decipher. But in terms of the way that we've always measured television ratings, according to the Oztam official ratings period, I think it was fairly clear that Seven had the lead
3: so our our issues are around which weeks of the year you measure whether you measure the whole country or just the metro capitals whether you measure all people or certain specific advertiser demographics whether you do it by network share or single station share um what what are the other variables, Zoe?
7: I think you've j I thought you were gonna miss the main channel versus network share, which has been a lot of the debate uh, this year. You can cut it whichever way you want. I think in Ten's case it's a focus on the under fifties growth in prime time. So there's you can cut the numbers anywhere that you want to look at to look at whether or not it serves and, and it depends on each network and what they're trying to communicate to advertisers as well. But essentially I think you've You've actually given every little divide, Tim. Well, look, it, it
3: happened to f- the, the, the the final um, day of the rating season was last Saturday night. And I, I happened to be on the news desk over the weekend. So it was me who wrote the, the kind of the, 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 the yearly rating story, although it's been you who's been sort of following the twists and turns over the year. And what I found quite interesting in my head was, before i sat down to write about it i was really unsure which way i was going to call it because it felt like 9 had had so much momentum particularly around 2554 mm. which is is it, you know it, it, it's one of those really key battlegrounds 9 would also say grocery buyer with with child as a as a sort of separate demographic which
7: which i don't think 10 has that viewpoint
3: yes and and 7 i think would go well in that category but wouldn't argue for it so so it feels like seven. So seven's victory was in all people in main channel share. So just channel seven versus channel nine, quite close. But then with ten, quite some way back. Also a victory for seven in all channels share. So when you add up seven, seven two, seven may versus nine and go and gem and so on, um, but nine. I think if you were a shareholder in nine, you'd be pleased with your victory in 2554 because that's where the advertisers spend their money. Um, What are the bright spots for 10? You've, You've alluded to growth in under 50s.
7: Look, I don't think 10s necessarily had a bad year and I know that we've hammered them for their low share in the overnight figures, often below 10%, often beaten by the ABC in some cases, um, it comes very close to SBS, which for those who don't read TV ratings every day is is very unusual. They've had some really good shows. They had a really good season of The Bachelor. They did. It was their highest performing season in history. They had their best season to date of Australian Survivor. They Yes, Blind Date didn't work. Game of Games, I, I would argue, definitely didn't work. But they actually, in terms of launching new stuff – there was momentum from them this year they obviously did pilot week as well which i mean you can define success whichever way you want they said it was a success for them they're going to do it again but there were definitely some little sparks in the year and when you look at the whole year and um and nine provides a graph every week that you'd see in our tv ratings on the weekend where you can look at each week in the share of a network or a channel each week. And you can see the spikes. You can see, oh, that must have been the finale of MasterChef's, ten, like 10 years of Master Chef. Oh, oh, that must have been the week of the Com games. You can see that automatically. And there are definitely a number of sparks for 10. And they did build momentum from the beginning of the year.
3: Mm. Um, I suppose the other one we have to kind of think about in the mix is MCN, mm. which started the year doing sales for both 10 and Foxtel. We had mm-hmm. the parting of the ways, the bringing back of a separate team for 10. Um, what's that going to do to the dynamic next year, do you think? Because effectively it means there'll be four big sales teams doing battle rather than three.
7: I think it will be good for Foxtel, um, which we can all talk about how well it's doing or how well it's not doing. But I think they could use a focused Team working on sales for Foxtel. And
3: this is MCN, multi-channel network. Multi-channel network. Effectively is the sales house of, of Foxtel.
7: Foxtel. Now that the deal with with 10's um unwinded, I'd say that it will be a competition's good, you know? MCN has had to focus on a free to air and um a subscription service, amongst other things, but primarily those two. Now you've got 10 who knows their brand, knows what they're after, they're hungry for more share of revenue. I think that will be advantageous to 10 because that's their sole focus. And I think it will be advantageous to uh, multi-channel networking that they've just got to focus on Foxtel. I think the more competition, the better. It's not about – it's about building that whole sector and growing that whole sector. Having four people I don't think is the worst thing there. It's just a matter of what does an advertiser want out of each – area and what suits them on any given week
3: and quickly before we get off this topic there's two other points i want to quickly cover number one um the abc really terrible share in that younger demographic so i I seem to remember in the 16 17 18 year olds five percent main channel share how does the national broadcaster stay relevant when that small proportion of young people are watching
7: to put myself in their shoes, I'd say that the way that they survive is is digital, which is the argument that they've had with the ABC charter. It's the argument that all the free to air networks and publishers are having with ABC because it, it's not technically part of their charter to go and evolve into digital. But that's where the young audience is. The young audience doesn't sit and watch television like I might well, they have they watch as a commercial
3: child. television though. That's the thing. They, they do. You know, uh, that's might why be the... they only have a five percent share of that available audience.
7: I'd say that, I'd say there, and and I remember this from when I was a child, the demographic maybe under 14, 13, 14, there are some great programs for kids. That middle bit is the hard bit. And I don't think that they've got that. They're going to need new programming if they want to compete at all in linear television. I guess against, against the commercial free-to-air networks. I don't necessarily think that the commercial free-to-air networks have got the eyeballs of hundreds of thousands of young people, but they're doing a significantly better job in delivering for that audience and ABC's got to step up their game.
3: And final point on this topic, you've, you've alluded to that digital audience. Um, it feels like we're much more an unsettled issue on what the battleground actually is for Mm -hmm. digital, you know, I think the phrase everyone uses these days is BVOD, broadcast video on demand. Do we even know who's winning and have the networks managed to agree between themselves what the metric is?
7: No. They haven't agreed. None of them can agree. And that's primarily the problem with BVOD. I remember at the beginning of this year, you and I, Tim, we sat down with Vivian, um, who I'm sure everyone knows is our editor, but in case you've forgotten by some miracle this week, um, we all sat down and tried to talk about how do we report on BVOD. Do we report on a given day? Is it 7, 14, 28 days of a program? Are we going to piss off a network by doing that? What are we measuring? Do we use VPM numbers? Do we use minutes? Do we use a combination of both? You know, I, I the networks are very good at working together on a number of things. This is something that they're really struggling with and ultimately it doesn't make the job of us any easier because you're looking with a million pieces of data trying to work out who's – and everyone's telling you the truth, but who is the truth that is perhaps the one – that would show who's the clear winner out of this. And and I don't think we got there this year. And that's something that we'll definitely be looking into in, in the next few weeks, if not early January.
3: Plenty to look forward to in 2019.
7: And finally,
6: Mumbrella turns 10 this week. By the time you hear this, we'll have run our Mumbrella Next event in Sydney, celebrating the fresh talent who came into the industry over the last 10 years. Tim, how are you feeling? A little bit emotional, perhaps.
3: <laughs> well, Sunday will be Mumbrella's tenth birthday. So, as we record this, I, I would imagine almost exactly this time ten years ago, I'd be. I remember saying to 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 my my colleague Martin, you know, I've got this mate in a, you know, I've got a few mates in a in a design agency to be able to build us a logo." But just for now, I'm just going to knock something up in in Microsoft Word that will just see us through the first few days, um, which I did, and then that became our logo for the first seven years. So my my apologies to the uh, to to all all the designers out there for showing such disrespect for the logo process, um, which didn't deserve to make make it in the end. But I. And I remember people just say, you know, I really, you know, I really like the lo fi approach you obviously deliberately took. It's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, that was what we did.
1: I've got a question for you, Tim. What would you say has changed most in, in the past 10 years at Mumbrella for you or for Mumbrella in general? Yeah, look, I think,
3: I think one of the things is it really felt like the center of gravity 10 years back was probably the creative agencies, certainly in what the trade press wrote about. Um, I'd say it's actually swung away from that perhaps rightly so towards the marketers and the brands you know people say follow the money and that's where the money is that if there's a brains trust somewhere now I'd say it actually you know broadly and obviously there are lots of exceptions mostly I think that sits brand side, brand side now you know most of the agencies you know they're, they're just there are clearly some great Ads, great campaigns come out of creative agencies, but not as routinely as they once did. Um, Media agencies, I think there was a great race towards, um, uh, in in particular, programmatic, and they saw that become a a big part of their business model. Arguably, they they cut too much resource out of it. Um, Hey, you know, media agencies, the two things they do, planning and buying, the clever bit, and the gorilla with calculator bit i think as the gorilla with calculator bit has sort of moved away from the dynamic a bit it, the, the point of difference is being clever with with planning but they that's expensive and i think a lot of them have taken too much out of that side of it so so i think that you know certainly the big challenge for the next 10 years is how do media agencies stay relevant and important um so that that i guess if there's one thing that saddens me a bit is i I, you know i don't i don't think media agencies as a sector as are as strong or influential as they were 10 years ago and that's a real pity because you know that 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 felt like a really interesting part of the industry
1: It's interesting you say that. I was having a conversation with someone this week and we were talking about this, but you could also argue the other side as you look to AI and how that's going to impact media agencies this year and and even last year media agencies have really had to sort of look inwards and think about their business models. But in a world that's going to become so – technology driven and AI driven I do think that that means that you're going to need more brand differentiation because otherwise how how are you gonna how brands gonna stand out and that I think is or you could look at it as a big opportunity for media agencies
3: and that is the scary thing about AI um you know I really like um the sort of the point of view that PhD one of the the media networks is they have a real point of view on AI but some of it is when we hit the singularity which effectively is the point at which you know everything changes with AI life change so much that it's almost impossible to predict what that means for the media you know this this point when you know we're we're, we're just saying you know hey siri book me a haircut or hey siri book me a restaurant
4: <laughs> I, I i i i
3: kind of rest my case um, <laughs> Rest Center on Eastwood Avenue in Eastwood. But luckily at the moment, Siri just remains completely irrelevant and gets it wrong. Like I had a great example this year where I was, I, I, I was chatting to my partner about, you know, I was saying, I really fancy a bagel for breakfast. So I, I sort of demonstrated. I'm actually going to hold the phone away from me so it doesn't go again. But, you know, I did the whole, hey, Siri. And I, I, was, I was trying to explain about, you know, the world of... Oh, God, oh shut up, Siri. Um, <laughs> I was trying to sort of say to my partner, okay, now let's, let me just demonstrate. So I did the whole... Hey, and I did it really quietly that time. So sorry, didn't I? Um, tell me about a, a cafe nearby that does bagels. And it did the whole thing and explained. It, it told us the address. We said, Well, let's go and have it. We haven't heard of this place. It's nearby. We turned up it had closed five years before it did oh not God. exist anymore <laughs> and that is the reality of mm. ai the gap between what really happens versus the promise now obviously the promise gap closes at some point uh, but wow you need some you need some clever uh thinkers around what this means for brands and some pragmatists as well to close that gap between the the, the promise and the reality So next week, uh, our editor, Vivian Kelly, will talk to us about some of the findings from the Mumbrella Next State of Industry Survey, which we revealed in Sydney on Thursday night. Now, speaking of surveys, Industry Foundation Unlimited threw its weight behind some research into mental health of those working inside this highly pressured industry. And uh, next, Josie will talk to some of those behind that survey.
6: Hello, Josie here. Now, if you're listening to this in December and you work in Adland or the media, you will almost certainly be mentally preparing for the next few weeks of festive drinking and boozy lunches. But even if you've somehow found a way to persuade your colleagues that a glass of lemonade is actually a vodka tonic, I'm willing to bet that you are at the very least feeling burnt out, tired and counting down the days to the holidays. But should we really be feeling this exhausted? Is it normal to feel this way and is there anything we can do about it? Joining me to help answer those tricky questions is a panel of some of Australia's leading names in the mental health and wellness space. Joining me around the table, we have Jaylee Skien, Director of EveryMind Australia, a leading national institute dedicated to reducing mental ill health.
4: Hi, great to be here.
6: And next to Jaylee, we have Andy Wright, founder of Never Not Creative, a community for creatives to address the challenges they face as both individuals and
5: businesses. Good morning. Thanks for having me.
6: And next to Andy, we have Chris Friel, CEO of Unlimited, a social purpose organization connecting the media, marketing, and creative industries with charities helping children and young people at risk. Hello. And last but not least, we have Fleur Marks, WPPAUNZ's Wellbeing and Talent Development Director. Fleur helps lead and develop bespoke wellbeing programs across the agency holding group.
2: Breathing in and breathing out. (laughs)
6: Um, Now, as I mentioned, we're getting to that time of year where almost every day involves some kind of drinking situation and we might be struggling to finish our work before the end of the year. Andy, I might come to you first on this one. What is it about the holiday season that makes it so difficult to keep a hold on your mental health?
5: Um, I think, like you said, it is the end of the year. So this is when all your deadlines come into play um which makes it you know it's it's the crunch point and i think you know in the creative industry especially there's nothing like a deadline to uh to sort of get you there and over the line um i had my christmas party yesterday so How are you i had feeling? a very early start this morning uh it was quite civilized so we had an italian cooking class actually very nice um, but yeah so i think yeah you know, it is the year of deadlines um we've just done a big study into mental health overall and um it's funny like i think actually i'm not sure people have the time to be honest to go yeah. off and uh, and sort of let off steam too much i think that comes at christmas um mm-hmm. more so than it does sort of in the lead up to it
6: and the drinking side of things it is so common in both the media and marketing industries why is that and, and does it have to be that way <laughs>
5: You know, I, I don't even know if it is as much as it was, to be honest. Mm. I don't think like, I mean, from the survey, like yeah, people just don't have time for that. Like and it, when you've got all of those deadlines before Christmas, I'm not sure it's as big as a, as a problem.
2: Flair, do you agree with that? Well, I think the work hard, play hard culture is still alive and well. Um, we're trying to sort of bring mindful drinking kind of as an approach. So uh, sort of redesigning the way in which, you know, connecting fun doesn't necessarily have to equal drinking. Uh, and, and thinking about it from a sort of live more by being a bit more mindful about what you're doing so you can show up the next day and do what you've got to do um, because the impact is often quite huge when you do go hard. Um, so we're just trying to change that language around, you know, associating the drink trolley with, a Friday necessarily. And if there is a drink trolley, making sure there's sort of a, I guess a diverse range of non-alcoholic or low alcohol options as well as the, the other stuff.
6: Now you mentioned the, um, mentally healthy study, which came out this week. Um, it it revealed that there was a significantly significantly high rates of both depression and anxiety within the media and marketing industries. Now, Jaylee, you work with Every Mind across a lot of different industries. Why do you think it is more prevalent in 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 Adland?
4: Yeah. Well, what we found from the research with over eighteen hundred people from the creative industry, from media, and from marketing is that over 50% of people would have um, mild to severe um, experiences of both depression and anxiety. And that does seem to be higher than a community sample where we see um, about 30% of people experiencing mild to severe Levels, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, we need to be mindful that every time we put out a survey for people, there is a bit of response bias. So people who've had some experience with these issues or in some way interested are more likely to complete these types of surveys. So we, we naturally probably get a bit of an elevated um, prevalence whenever we do workplace or industry-specific surveys like this. But at a minimum, what it tells us is that experiences of stress anxiety and depression are just as prevalent if not more prevalent in this particular industry and I think there are some really unique challenges that people might face you talked about the kind of blending of social and work that can happen and, and expectations that people have that that's part of your job to do that certainly in the research that we do um, some um, expectations that people have of themselves and so wanting to perform pressure to perform pressure to be creative but also perhaps that pressure to actually um, perform and deliver for clients as well. And so we need to be mindful that every industry is a bit different um, and I think if we're going to think about how we might respond, not just as a community to mental health and wellbeing, but how we respond at work, we need to know a little bit more about what is it specifically about this industry and what is it that we can target to younger people, to older people, to different parts of the industry. And is there something to be
6: said for that creative side of things that is more inclined towards
5: stress? I think I mean as Jaylee mentioned like the the pressure we put upon ourselves. It's it's funny, it's it's one of those things where I think like people aren't necessarily forcing you to do things, but like collectively we've created this environment where you you put that pressure on yourself or you put that pressure on, you know, listen, someone said this is going to be an award-winning piece. Or, or, you know, if somebody's coming in at the weekend, who else is going to come in? You know, and that, that kind of deadline before the end of the year definitely mm. um, doesn't doesn't help with that. So there's this kind of almost like um, invisible expected pressure um, that, that comes and then it leads into things like, you know, you're taking your work home with you. You can't switch off. You kind of get fidgety and anxious because, you know, or you, you haven't cracked an idea yet and you know that there's a hard date on, on when... Um, when it's got to be done by and so it that all of that just kind of piles on and there's this like there's an internal sense of we don't want to let anyone down you know we you know we want to do the best possible thing that we can and often sometimes that can be at the the expense of ourselves
6: and chris is is that overwork aspect of things something that you recognize
5: i think it definitely came
0: out in the survey um of the respondents so you know if you're talking at what the pressure points were what the stresses were Um, long hours was a part of that, but putting that pressure on themselves was the biggest part of that. So as Andy said, you know, the expectation we put on ourselves is actually much bigger than... The perceived expectation that is put on us by others, but both of them really play play a part within our industry, and I think that is shown through people working longer hours or working at weekends. I think there was quite a large proportion of the survey where they were working over eight hours per day, and they were working one weekend in every four as well. So people are, um, you know, going above what you'd say is is the norm and and above beyond, and that's having an impact.
4: I think it's really possible for people in industries also to create norms and so a culture of an industry and a culture of a workplace can really set what people think is expected and so Um, At the event we held this week, it was, you know, great Andy reflected and said, how often do we congratulate someone for going home on time? Mm. Or to kind of pick up on the, the opening around the kind of social season or the silly season, how often do we congratulate or think it's a great thing for people to say no to an event or no to drinking alcohol when they know that that wouldn't be the right thing for them. But we have this perception about what is okay for our industry and what we think is the norm with our peers. And I think sometimes it just takes perhaps a reality check or perhaps some leadership to start unpicking some of those norms and I think lots of different industries and lots of different community have those and I think it's really good to pay attention to them.
2: So our um, wellbeing program grows across 80 companies and some of those beliefs are in people's minds. No one said out loud, you have to work long hours to get ahead or, you know, you um need to do your real job after hours kind of all those expectations sit there uh, in people's minds so what we've been trying to do is sort of do things like leaders leaving loudly so it's okay to leave at a certain time making some of the the leaders behaviours actually show people that this this can change it doesn't have to be this way because it is high performing, it is, you are constantly on, and people are looking for better ways to kind of work. They've sort of mm. forgotten with this kind of blurred boundary between work and life. How do we, how do we kind of get back to focusing? So some of those skills have been picked up really heavily in our programs for that reason.
6: And do you think young people and people, more junior members of the industry are more susceptible to that because you know they they're so excited to be in the industry as something that they've wanted to do f- for years maybe through uni they finally got there so they just want to prove themselves but do you think that might be partly where where that feeling is coming from
5: yeah definitely i mean we've set up ladders right like we, we've set up these ladders that you're expected to climb and actually there are now more rungs on the ladder <laughs> than ever you know there's assistant of associate of something director and all that kind of stuff and it's <laughs> like you know someone else gets a promotion and if you haven't got one and you're behind and like, so we've kind of set up this system that um i know was meant probably well meaning in fact that it was it was meant to, it was put in place to reward people <laughs> um but actually it's increased the pressure to to kind of move on up um we definitely see that the survey kind of said loud and clear that people who are younger um, are more susceptible to the symptoms um, of kind of depression and anxiety and so that but also at the other end like on the the kind of the older side there is um, there's there's slightly more stigma around Mm -hmm. poor mental health um, symptoms and so what's really interesting about that is the is the dynamic that it creates because you've got sort of people who are leaders or, or in management in businesses trying to put in programs, you know, in place for younger people in the business to try and have better mental health. And it's actually it at the moment, I don't feel like it's it's that easy to create a conducive environment for that conversation to take place. Um, but also, is it really kind of addressing some of those expectations as well? Yeah.
2: Well, it comes, comes back to like we've been teaching um, or I guess upskilling our young people on some of the self-leadership pieces. Only you can take care of your well-being ultimately and giving them the tools and the ways to do that what we've found is then there's still that tension when you come back into the work environment where you're still, you know, you might be expected to do, you know, work late and all this. So there's kind of a bit of a rub where you come Mm -hmm. back and go, right, I'm going to leave at five today. I'm going to go and do some exercise or whatever. There's kind of that, but you can't. So it's just kind of getting the workplace environment to marry up with some of the... The, i guess the skills on how to integrate your work life you know yeah and
5: I, I think that's what it is it's like you know there are lots of things done in businesses of you know whether it's yoga or meditation and things mm. like that but actually they might be for half an hour an hour a day yeah. um but it's the other six and a half seven nine ten eleven hours a day that are affecting our mental health yeah um and so those things kind of become it's like the classic agency um we're going to improve culture and get a foosball table mm. you know like <laughs> that, that actually isn't the thing that improves your it's almost yeah. like a, a an excuse for your culture
2: so we look at well-being into eight elements you know one of them is financial because people spend three to four hours a week at work worrying about their money and how, helping people know how to budget, how to take control, what's their relationship with money and how do they, you know stuff like that that's actually a little beyond the yoga yeah. or the sort of tokenistic stuff um, actually or connecting back to my values and what matters to me and my work life and how do I you know make sure I show up and honour that rather than just get stuck in the doing so moving beyond the skills of just you know physical and mental, mm. into you know, the environment, financial, all the other elements of well being have been more powerful for people to, or productivity is another well being piece that people just go, Well, that's something that can help me every day um, rather than just a good old yoga class,
4: which yeah, is good. Yeah, that's you know, from a mental health professional's perspective, I see often that workplaces want to do something that seems like a good idea and often that will be bringing people from um, my sector to give a one-hour talk on depression or on wellbeing or mental health and that's great and that can be a great conversation starter. It can be a great adjunct to things that are going on but it can't be the only thing that's done you can't bring in a speaker for an hour once a year and have people working 12 hours a day feeling unrewarded unsupported and all those things So, so this isn't just about focusing on mental illness but what I would say is there's some really positive things that came out of the survey that we released this week because very few people, like such a really small percentage, would not be okay working with someone who had a mental illness. So while there was a still kind of mixed results in terms of whether people would put their hand up to disclose and more people probably than not saying I wouldn't disclose, but I'd be A-OK with my colleagues, my teammates, people I work with every day having a mental illness. And so I think we've come some way actually to reducing the stigma But also, that doesn't necessarily automatically lead to help seeking. And so how do we create cultures where people can help offer? How can they identify and support the people around them? And how can we get that support to people who are working on their own? A lot of people are freelancers and um, owner-operators in this particular space, and we've got to be mindful that they don't all have teams around them or great well-being programs or Others And so we've got to really work with different parts of the industry as well.
2: And it's quite tricky to navigate when you are in a high-performing industry and you might have one of your team who is coping with, you know, or needs to step out with whatever mental health issue they might have, how that's communicated to the team, how you put support around that person, how you ensure the, other, the rest of the team members don't fall over by picking up that workload making it safe for that person to transition back in to the business once they've stepped out for a bit or whatever might be their thing. It's quite hard for a leader to go, well, how do I do that if they've never really had to face it? And they don't want to be disrespectful, they want to support. Um, so we're trying to help our leaders work out how to do that because I think it's quite challenging navigating that. Um, I think it's great that people want to support. It's just how we do that in an environment where we're expected to kind of deliver, I guess.
4: And modern ways of doing that, I would actually say for a lot of people, stay at work plans rather than leave and return to work plans isn't the case for everybody. But for Mm. a lot of people, and usually our first response is if someone is struggling with a mental health problem, someone's got a diagnosis of anxiety and depression. And a lot of people who do our survey, whether they're diagnosed or not, would have levels that indicate that they probably would get a diagnosis. Um, You know, a lot of people are very productive in the workplace if they're supported, and it might just mean a slight change in um, the way in which work's done. Or I know, for example, people who um, experience depression, getting to work on time in the morning can be a really challenging Mm. thing. Getting out of bed, getting up and getting dressed after poor sleep can be a really challenging thing. And so how can we bring some give in our workplaces? How can we kind of bring in just that little bit of flexibility, that little bit of give around the edges that acknowledges that we're all human and in actual fact, people do better when they're around other people, and so mm. there's a lot the workplace can him. do, yeah, to support people in at work, not mm. outside of work.
5: I, I think that's a good point. Like I've worked in businesses that have people have had ulcers because of work, um, which is pretty extreme. And so, you know, our, our, the business response was, "Oh, well, you need to take some time off, you know, th- three or four weeks, even in some cases, maybe more." And um, but nothing changed when they came back. Mm. Right, like there was no change in the way the work was being done. What they were working on, it was like you get a rest, back into it, and you know mm-hmm. suddenly you're, you're ready to go again. And I think that doesn't all that does is kind of like, it treats the problem, it doesn't fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important in terms of what we're trying to achieve go forward.
0: And I, I think for us with this survey, that's exactly why we did the survey in the first place. You know, we, we've we had lots of conversations in the lead up to the survey around mental health. We knew it was a topic that everybody wanted to talk about, but the main drive from certainly an unlimited perspective and a never not creative perspective was not just to shine a light on the industry. It was actually to go, well, what next? What can we do to support the industry in that? And so from our perspective going into next year, there's a number of different initiatives that we want to put in place for the industry to be able to tap into and that's from things like talking to the industry bodies and bringing all of the industry bodies together to look at our infrastructure and how we can work together to make the environment a better place for um, for individuals to work in to the more practical kind of skills based tips and advice and working with charities like Batir or Living, um, to actually put workshops on for different communities. And we'll be doing that going into next year, um, from, from an unlimited perspective.
2: I think it is the little, the, the smaller mini habit skills, you know, easy to access, not I don't have to change my whole life to be yeah. able to learn how to do some of the stuff is mm. what we've found people connect with most, um, yeah. but also having people in the business who model that behaviour or who are, you know, mm-hmm. that they respect, that they go, oh, I, I can see that there's, it's not you know, it's okay to be taking care of yourself yeah. or to not, not be okay. It's okay to be open and vulnerable as a leader or it's yeah. those sorts of things make it just more possible.
0: And there's no one size fits all. No, yeah, of course. But more people actually having the conversation um, can only be a good thing.
6: Yeah. Now it feels like it, it needs to come from the top down and it is really important to educate the leaders across the industry, especially if those leaders happen to be slightly older, which your survey shows, they might have slightly more stigma around mental health. Obviously, I'm not putting any generalizations on anyone here. But um, how, how do we educate those leaders and, and how do we make sure that it comes from the top down?
5: So the, the top down thing is interesting. It definitely has to have the top involved down. Um, but I think there's a real watch out as well, which is thinking that if you're at the top, you have to provide the solution for anybody under you. Um, and I, I actually was at an event recently and I watched a lot of business owners talk about it. was, it was an event called Designing Your Mental Health. I watched a lot of business owners talk about how, um, you know, what they've done in their workplaces to create a better working environment and, and that kind of stuff. And, and basically, that they, you know, it, in, in very well meaning ways, they had a lot of answers for everybody else. And actually, the young people in the room shut up instantly. There was like this kind of like, I'm not, I, you know, they'd come to an event, which was about talking about designing your mental health. Um, so clearly they were ready to, to contribute. But as soon as that had happened, the, the, that side of the room kind of shut down. And it really sort of raised a bit of an alarm bell for me. And I, what I think one of the best things that leadership could do would be to listen, step back and actually allow the people in their teams and in their businesses to start a conversation around how they would like to design their workplace for better mental health. Um, and I think that would be a massive step forward versus and, – and, and, and you know, it's not a kind of – again, it's not a one size fits all. It's not like, oh, this is going to be the best way for, for everybody. And actually, there's probably a bunch of things that all need to happen at the same time for it to be um, – for it to work. But I think that is a big watch out for what we're about to embark on.
4: I think I there t- are some real oh. structural things that leaders can and need to do. So around – work hours, policies, um, you know, how we – so really structural things, even about how we recruit people and orient them and give them the tools and the skills that they need to actually do the job. But it is important that in any business, including the one that I run, um, that whatever great ideas that I might come up with, unless it's peer-led, unless people kind of feel some sense of ownership, then – then things won't happen. So there needs to be a nice mix of both. I think the industry can have a look at some things. Are there some industry standards? Are there some, um, you know, basics that really need to be more broadly covered off um, that the industry perhaps can tackle? Are there things that a leadership inside of an organisation can do? And what are the things that sit in their area of responsibility? And that might be training their supervisors and leaders to actually be Um, competent to have these kinds of conversations or identify all the ways they can support workers. But as Andy said, there's a real need for us to um, trust and listen to the people inside of our organisations who usually know what's right for them. Um, I think it's really about how we create parameters for that, but really allowing this to be both a top-down and a bottom-up approach is usually best across industries, not just in this one.
2: We've had over 200 of our most senior leaders go through a two-day uh, well-being program and it starts with self-leadership and because we recognise that our actual leaders are under a huge amount of pressure also and in order for them to show up and be the best leader they can be they've got to take care of themselves first and recognise where they're at in their wellbeing journey but then also you know what that looks like and how that how that works for them, um, and we've found that hugely profound not only for our leaders but for their families and for their teams. So it's actually changed some of our families, you know, lives, um, and also for some it's kind of changed the way they work uh, and how they show up. But even giving them two days to stop and think about their well being and then what that impact is, is as a leader to serve their people, how they might be able to support them and write a well being plan for their own culture. Um, has been profoundly important for us. But we also had our 56 wellbeing ambassadors that were trained within each of our, across 80 of our companies, so that we've still got the ground up. So people can go, what does it mean in my culture here within my company that's going to be relevant and and empowered, kind of a younger group of people who are trained, they go through a training program to go, well, what does wellbeing look like for my organisation and what's going to have the most impact? So the two together have been made a massive difference um, in in actually shifting the dial. And it can be the little things in the culture that have changed, whether it's be here now boxes and meeting rooms or whether it's the snacks become healthy suddenly or or, or as a leader how they might show up and actually be rested and well to be able to lead their team has been massive for us. So I think it's kind of a combination. And if they're more able to to take care of themselves, they're more able to be open to hear others and help them um, is what we've experienced so far.
6: So, job satisfaction is a big one here. I think it's a really important thing for someone to turn up to work and actually enjoy the job that they're doing. How important is that in terms of mental health that you found?
5: Yeah, we, we found job satisfaction as being one of the major contributors. Um, and it, it, it kind of makes sense. Like, we get into this industry for kind of like good purpose, and you know, like we, we're told we can change the world. Um, And I think, you know, we'll kind of end up wanting to do that. And then, you know, you might get stuck doing a press out for a regional paper or, you know, it doesn't suddenly feel like you're going to be able to change the the world. Um, And so, you know, we saw that the job satisfaction was a really, there's a big strong correlation between that and the level of mental health that you have. And when you kind of then, like, take that back to some of the other findings, like the sort of, you know, older versus younger conversation that we've been talking about, it actually might be much easier to have a conversation about job satisfaction um, than it is about mental health, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if we could actually find better ways to make the job more meaningful... Um, and this is kind of when I went back to sort of designing mental health solutions is that they don't necessarily have to be about mental health. They can be about how much meaning and, and how much purpose you're getting in, in your role. Um, and the, the things that are kind of keeping people in the industry at the moment are the people around them and the places they work. Um, and we know that we do that quite well. But then it's almost like you use that. And I've had people that have worked for me in the past that have said, like, you know, I, I, I really love the people here and I really love the place, but I don't love the work you know and that's where we're kind of losing people so we've got to find ways to make that that kind of job much more meaningful and much more purposeful and a shameless plug from an
0: unlimited perspective (laughs) is that we can help with that as well you know purpose comes in many different ways and shapes and sizes but certainly from our um, experience over the last year or two working with corporates where um, we identify that they're Their staff, in particular their younger staff, really want to do something that's driving social impact and social Mm. good. We're seeing some really good results in the staff surveys of the happiness factor of their staff um, as well. So
2: we can help there. (laughs) And I think part of job satisfaction comes up to being able to be your whole self at work, all of you, and not leave yourself at the front door when you walk in. Um, And I think we've found that if people can be truly themselves at work, that does result in better satisfaction, um, which... I think, is great. Like, why not?
6: And I would imagine that also results in better work because if yeah. you're being yourself, you're being a person who might also be, if you're doing an ad, they might be the kind of person that is going to be watching or committing that ad. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, it makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I would say this survey isn't all doom and gloom. There's a lot of positives that come out of the survey mm-hmm. as well. I mean, almost half of the organisations are tackling mental health as, as part of the infrastructure of what they do, which is a great, great start. You know, there's, there's always more that we can do, but the industry itself is very much open to this conversation and, and having it.
6: Okay, great. I think that's probably all we've got time for, but thank you, everyone, for joining me. Thank you. Thank
3: you. So if you want to read more about that survey, we'll include a link to it in the description for this episode. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping.
6: Thanks for supporting the Mumbrella cast since we brought it back. If you haven't had a chance yet, we'd love if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. It really helps us out.
3: And that's all for this week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Tim. Toodle-pip.